Welcome to Vista Community Church Online. We're excited to join you at home, at work, or wherever you find yourself during this time of worship and teaching. We choose to teach straight from God's Word, the Bible. We hope that you're encouraged today, that something speaks hope into your life, that this time is worth it. We are so thankful for what God is doing in this season, here at Vista and in you. So let's worship together. I learned probably one of the most significant lessons of my life um, sitting in a chair just like this, a folding chair. I want to tell you a little bit about that story in just a minute. But first, can we talk for a second about the state of our world? In a couple weeks, America is going to go back to work, at least in part. And you all know there's, that's a mixed bag. It's good and it's bad. It's hard and it's, you know, it's tough. It, it, it's, it's good for the economy. It's tough on, right? So uh, the reality, though, is the church is not going to change. The way we're doing church can't change probably till June at the earliest. The, the, the individual constraints for sanitizing and distance, if we could work it out as adults, maybe, but the kids' community impossible it's just impossible so we got to keep going keep practicing those pandemic disciplines uh keep connecting uh through zoom love that you're taking advantage of these online services on sunday morning we're enjoying doing them uh you're connecting through social media just just keep going you're, you're doing great if i could challenge you in one way it would be this um uh, Start thinking about those in your spheres of influence that are not connected. And start thinking about ways to pull them into those spaces. Uh, introduce them to this online deal on Sunday morning. Maybe even better, invite them into your Zoom conversations. You know, it's, it's a really easy intro for them because they can get into those conversations and not be seen or heard. And I, I cannot tell you how valuable it is for people that are feeling lonely and disconnected just to be near a conversation, just to hear other people vent, to talk, to cry, to laugh. So they don't think they're the only one going crazy. And so they don't feel so alone. Let me encourage you to, and to take advantage of these times. That if you've been praying for people that are far from God, now's the time to ask them if they need some encouragement, if they need some community. Invite them in. It's, it's pretty easy for them to do. You can come in pretty anonymous. Take care of yourselves. Take care of one another. Uh, be gracious. Be kind. Forgive quickly. Keep short accounts. Don't, don't come apart. Grow together through this. Own your stuff. Own your stuff. You know you're stressing everybody out with your stuff. We all are. Every one of you is stressing everybody else out in your house. At least own it. Put it out there. And when someone does, forgive them. Be gracious. We're going to make it. We're going to do it. But it's going to be a little while longer for us. It's going to be a grind. We're maybe only a third or a half of the way through this thing to where we're going to be meeting again. Let's lean into it and, and, and take advantage of it. So let me tell you that story. Uh, right here in the auditorium. And we're making some progress, right? Here we are, back in the auditorium. Here's what happened. I was sitting in front of a panel of upperclassmen. There were four of them. They were seniors. And they were interviewing three of us who were being considered 
for the cadet group commander, right? I was in ROTC while I was in college. There were a hundred of us marching around campus. And as seniors, one of us would take on the lead role, the highest ranking position. Um, it was going to be one of the three of us. The other two candidates were highly qualified. They were unbelievable cadets, and they went on to be superior officers, no doubt. Uh, here's what happened. Sitting in the chair, four people, and they started probably something like this. It was more of an interrogation than it was an interview. They were trying to be intimidating, testing your mettle, as it were. And they said, hey, you're up against two rock-solid candidates. Uh, why should we select you instead of them to uh, command uh, this cadet group next year? To which I responded, uh, I don't really think you should. I think you should pick one of the other two. I was utterly convinced that those two were better candidates than me. They were, they were more into the whole military scene. They were, they were exceptional people. And I felt like they would have done really just a better job. I thought they'd be more dedicated to the work. So that's what I told them. Pick the other two. And everything in the room just changed. They started asking me about the other two candidates. They, they wanted my perspective on the whole ROTC program. They were asking my opinion about who was respected and who wasn't, even among the professors. They were asking for my input on the classes and the way they were doing drills and they even asked me what I would change if I could change anything in the program. <laughs> Everything in that room changed. I didn't get the job. I think she did. I'm absolutely certain that she did because B. Downs was furious, I think. <laughs> and not long after that moment, Mr. Elliot, I remember Mr. Elliot, um, one of the guys on the panel tracked me down in sort of a private moment and said, I just want to let you know, we came this close to picking you. I was advocating for you, but I couldn't win out over the other three. Um, and I just want to let you know, this is what he said, and this was the lesson that has lived with me ever since. I just want you to know how compelling are your candor and your authenticity and your humility. Now listen, I'm not trying to push myself to the center of the story or claim to be something that I'm not. I don't remember being humble. I don't remember um, uh, even intending to be humble. I really just thought they were better. And if I'm being completely frank, I didn't want that responsibility in my senior year. So I was like, you know, I'll just go that way. But the point was felt. And I do remember that that deferential approach, it did, it changed everything. This is what I've seen a hundred times over since then how naturally people respect and value sincerity, authenticity, and humility. 
God sure does. Listen to, listen to what he says through his, uh, to one of Jesus' disciples, Peter, uh, who says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. And then James uh, says, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves, then, to God. As we continue to talk in this series about aiming for great, we're going to have to add humility to the mix. Last week, we talked about how John the Baptist defined greatness by pointing to Jesus. It was, an, it was instructive for us to realize that his circumstances were, were not good. His performance was lackluster. His faith was wavering. He didn't have much at all. Yet in the midst of all that, which we can certainly relate to, Jesus said he was great. And he said he was great because it wasn't about John the Baptist. It was about the fact that John the Baptist pointed to Jesus. That's, that's step one. That's, that's the first part of aiming for great in God's kingdom is pointing to Jesus. No matter what, please, Church, please, people, humanity, anyone who would listen, please know that your greatness in God's kingdom has nothing to do with your circumstances. It has nothing to do with your performance. It has nothing to do with what you have. It has everything to do with your willingness to point to him. Now add to that this week, humility. Aim low. (laughs) Jesus just flips it upside down. He says, aim low if you're aiming for great in God's kingdom. Jesus said the first will be last and the last will be first. The friend who lays their life down is the one who's great, right? Aim low to be great in God's kingdom. We're going to look at a very compelling story um, uh, about the woman at the well. I've been hearing all week that this has already been covered by the chosen in week eight. I'm I'm not there yet. I would guess that we're going to treat this very similarly. So make sure you watch that and um, and, uh, you'll be good to go. (laughs) We're going to look at the woman at the well. Uh, John chapter four. I'm going to do some a lot of paraphrasing here because I got a lot of scripture to cover, but I'm going to highlight a few particular points to try to stay with me here. Jesus is wandering about. He's walking. I'm sure he was doing it with great uh, uh, intentionality, but he walked where Jews don't normally walk. He went to the neighboring uh, country of uh, countryside of uh, Samaria. Jews typically weren't allowed to go in there. They certainly weren't allowed to talk to anybody. You're going to see Jesus breaking those boundaries here in just a second. But he, he's walking. He comes across really an ancient Jewish site uh, that was no longer owned by the Jews. The Samaritans were there. And in this, uh, he's tired. It's a, it's a water well. So he sits down uh, by the well. And it was about noon. And uh, when a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? To which she says, Logically, you're a Jew, I'm a Samaritan woman, how can you ask me for a drink? You shouldn't be here and you shouldn't be talking to me. And again, let me paraphrase, here's what happens. She talks about regular water, Jesus talks about living water, she talks about regular water, Jesus talks about living water, they don't really connect. Jesus is trying to draw this woman in to a conversation with him 
part of the eternal God, right? Jesus. And so he's talking about things much deeper, much satisfying, much more satisfying, much more eternal than just this water. She doesn't really get it. Uh, but they're having this conversation about water. And then Jesus throws this in. He says, uh, hey, go call your husband and come back. <laughs> I don't know why she would do that. I don't know if her husband would even come back. But she doesn't leave to get her husband. What she says is astounding. She says, I have no husband. It's a little bit of a, little bit of a dodge. But Jesus knows this woman probably better than she knows herself. And he says, you're right. You say you have no husband. That's true. The fact is you have five husbands. And the man you now have is not your husband. You are telling the truth. Pretty vulnerable moment here. What's happened is, although they're not connecting about water, they are connecting because she exposes the most vulnerable part of her life, the shame of her life, the guilt of her life, um, probably deemed an adulteress of some sort, um, an outcast, of course, by the people. That's why she's at the well at noon. Nobody goes to the well at noon. It's too hot. You go to the well when the sun is down in the morning or hasn't come up or when it's gone down or later in the evening. And you also go there to connect with other people and to talk. She doesn't want to be around people. She goes at noon so that her vulnerabilities, her shame is not thrown in her face yet again. This is what's amazing about this moment is that she puts it right out there for Jesus she says in response, I can see you're a prophet. So she's getting a little bit more of a clue here. And so the conversation does shift a little bit religious. And they start now moving the conversation from water to worship. And if, again, I could paraphrase for you, what she's saying is, I can't worship because I don't live in the right place and I'm not the right kind of a person. And Jesus says, you know, that's going to end pretty soon. And it's not going to be about what mountain you worship on. Um, and it's not going to be about who you are or where you are or what you are. He says, the truth of the matter is, is that worshipers, true worshipers, will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. That's who God is searching for. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. And this draws her in a little bit more. And she says, I know the Messiah. So she's aware of some things that are going. She goes, I know the Messiah is coming. And when he comes, he'll explain everything to us. So she admits, I'm not really tracking with everything you're saying, but I know that one is going to come someday. Which is pretty amazing for a Samaritan woman to have that kind of knowledge about the Jewish faith. She knows the Messiah is coming. She even thinks it's going to apply to her somehow. This is crazy. And Jesus says, this is the moment he's been waiting for. She says, basically, the Christ is going to come. And he says, the one who's speaking to you, I am he. Just about that time, perfect timing, the disciples show up and they find him talking to a woman. And like I said earlier, this is completely out of a line. They shouldn't be in Samaria in the first place. They know that. He certainly shouldn't be talking to a Samaritan woman. Awkward moment. 
camel in the room moment. No one asks any questions. And then the woman leaves. Leaves her water jar there. She's no longer concerned about water. She was when she started. Not anymore. And she goes back to the town and says to the people, everybody that she's been avoiding, she suddenly goes back to them and says this. Catch this. It's enormous. Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? And they came out of the town and made their way to Jesus. This passage preaches on its own. (laughs) She went back to the people that she's been hiding from and avoiding and that ridicule her. And she says to them, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Translation, you know me. You know me. You know who I am. You have judged me. You have condemned me. Everything that you know about me, this guy who doesn't know me just told me. And here I am telling you about it. This guy must be the Messiah. And the amazing response is, they want to go find this man. That's the perfect testimony. She comes and she speaks and they want to go find Jesus. I want to point out some things here that I hope will help us add humility to our greatness. Again, greatness by God's definition. First of all, uh, pointing to Jesus is done, to restate the point, by humbly saying yes to God. Deferring, the main thing that we see this woman doing through the first parts of the story is hanging in there in conversation with God himself. Just staying in the conversation. Letting him move the conversation. Answering the questions truthfully and honestly. She came to get water and she has set her agenda down and began following the agenda of Jesus. To point to God requires us to have the humility to defer to him and to consider his will above our own. This is what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Not everybody who says that I'm Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven, but those who do the will of the Father who is in heaven are those that will find their way into the kingdom. Those who do the will of the Father. The hardest part about doing the will of the Father, because intellectually, if you believe in God, you probably pretty naturally want to do his will. But what we naturally do not want to do is lay aside our own will. That's what's implied. Those who can set aside their own agendas for God's agendas, those who have the humility to say no to their own aspirations and yes to the aspirations of God, that is who will find their way into the kingdom. That is one of the keys to pointing to Jesus. That is one of the keys to humility is deferring to God. It's not an easy thing for us to do. I remember in the midst of a series we did maybe two years ago now 
on the adoptive heart of God, I asked us all to consider adopting, to be open to adopting. I didn't ask anybody to adopt. I, didn't, I wasn't so presumptuous. But I felt comfortable that I could say everyone should be open to adopting because we've all been adopted by God through Christ. I can't tell you how many people, maybe, maybe you remember being in this camp. Totally understandable. After that message, I got a lot of conversation, a lot of emails, the emails that said, I can't adopt. I, I'm too old. I don't have the resources. I don't have the faith. I don't have the skill set. I was like, I didn't ask anybody to adopt. I just asked you to be open to adoption. Why would God ever ask you to do something he wouldn't equip you to do? Why would we ever be closed to anything that God might do? But it is not in our nature to be open to things that we don't feel equipped for. It takes a great deal of humility to defer to God's will because it may not align with our own. But I tell you what, deferring to God's will is a surefire way to point to him better. We see the woman deferring. We even see Jesus deferring. At the end of the passage, he says, my food, which we'll talk about later, is, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Look, if even Jesus is deferring to the will of God, if Jesus is setting the example of deferring to God, then, then we must do it. Jesus introduced humility into the space of leadership. And for all intents and purposes, that had never been done. Humility was never equated with leadership. Leadership was in antiquity, was defined by ruthless power, the absence of weakness, or at least the obscuring of any weakness that you had, external or internal. Humility was an admission of vulnerability. And by definition, if you were vulnerable, you were making yourself available for attack. You would have lost all your power. A weak and vulnerable leader wouldn't be tolerated, nor would they survive. And Jesus said, but this is a part of the way God's world is designed. Jesus powerfully demonstrated humility by deferring to the Father and, defined, and redefined leadership. He was the first significant example of humble, vulnerable leadership and maybe the most ironic case in history because he was enormously powerful and had no faults. He didn't have to be humble, but he was. It's God's way. Humility is at the core of Jesus, which means it's at the core of how the world works. You know this to be true. Nothing works where there's arrogance and pride, not for very long. It's no wonder natural, uh, it's no wonder people naturally esteem and respect and value Humility, it's of God. Humble is the way the world works. Trees bend in the wind or they break. Horses 
turn in the proper direction or they stumble. Children defer to good parents or they run amok. Spouses defer to one another or they come apart. Friends lay down their lives for one another. And Jesus taught all of these things. There's a reason the most inspiring movies and stories and books all have humility at the core of the central character. Even in a silly movie like uh, Groundhog Day with Bill Murray, the whole thing pivots when he no longer is in pursuit of his own stuff, but is uh, elevating others above himself. It's a powerful moment in the movie Gladiator where uh, Maximus defers an offer to take the throne and says, I'm, essentially, I'm not ready. And the king, the Caesar, steps in and says, but Maximus, don't you see this is exactly why it needs to be you? Not just the woman, but Jesus himself demonstrate humility and the crucial nature of it if we really hope to point to God. I might even go as far as to say, because humility is at the core of who Jesus is. Our ability to be great in God's eyes is completely impaired if we aren't humble. Number two, I'm just going to say this outright and give you a second to try to absorb it. According to the woman at the well, who after Exposing her shame, vulnerably sharing her story, owning it, she runs back to the village and engages everybody that she's been avoiding her whole life, or at least to her adult life. She went right in there and said to them, come see a man who told me everything about me. That's powerful enough as it is. But here's the thing, what this does to those people, remember, they wanted to go find out who it was. Here's what this unfortunately means for us. You point to Jesus by humbly letting your shame, your failure, the worst parts of you be the core of your testimony. What do we naturally want to have as the core of our testimony? We want the core of our testimony to be something new. And God, God does do something new. Jesus does make us new. He does change us from the inside out. And we would rather show the world the great thing that I've become and say, look how great I, I am, even in the most humble. Look how great God made me to be. Even if you do it in the most humble way, look at the greatness that God made. You should go check it out. It's not really very compelling. What's compelling is when the follower of Jesus is unconcerned anymore about themselves at all. And they put themselves just out there and they say, this is Jesus loves me. He knows me and he spoke to me and he engaged me and he encouraged me. Me. This me, that's what's at the center of her testimony. How, how, why does this work? 
works because this lady should be immobilized and silenced by her past. But she's not. That's why people are compelled, because she should not be talking. She shouldn't have the capacity at all. She's still a failure. But that's not what defines her anymore. Nor is it the point. The power of her testimony, the power of, our, the power of your testimony, is how it brings us out of hiding when all by all rights we should still be hiding. That's the power, is the coming out with it. That's what changed the environment of the room that I was in. I was just honest. And they tapped right into that. They wanted some of that. Her words work because they confounded her life. And they compelled others, not to her, but to the one who did that for her. There are things that stand out in my life that I've seen people do that are the greatest things I've ever seen. And I, they're in my memory in a second. One was in middle school. Uh, no, no, elementary school. Like third grade, fourth grade. I spilled some milk in the cafeteria. I was embarrassed about it. The lunch lady comes over and says, who spilled this milk? And I hesitated. I was embarrassed. A kid that was in my Sunday school class said, I did it. And he had to sit by himself on the stage for a week, embarrassed about the milk that he spilled. And I never got him out of that <laughs> That was one of the greatest things I've ever seen. Straight up humility. I was talking to a guy that I expected would one day be an elder of the church I was leading in. And he said to me, let me tell you about my past. Let me tell you about the mistakes I've made. Let me tell you about the affair I had. You know what that does in that moment? Person that can own that stuff. It's made changes. It's been renewed and restored. And the marriage is healthy as ever. And you, you want to make him an elder like right now. It's, it's, it's powerful. We point to Jesus by living in his grace and in his mercy, and as a result, being, imagine that, that this, uh, being utterly comfortable in your own skin with your whole past and your current shortcomings. That is what makes us a pointer to Jesus when our whole self is right there and it's fine. It's fine. That's powerful. Last point I want to make here is that um, we point to Jesus by being deeply filled. By being deeply satisfied in life. In the midst of all of our stuff. In the midst of our circumstances and, 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 and our lackluster performance and, and what we don't have. And the failings and the mistakes that we've had. The sense of substance and gravitas in the midst of that is one of the things that makes us a good pointer to Jesus.
<laughs> the, the disciples come back and they go, hey, rabbi, teacher, do you want something to eat? And he says, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. And the disciples said to each other, could someone have brought him some food? Like, they're clueless again. They're like, who, who brought him food? And he said, look, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. If we're honest, the idea of giving up our own aspirations for God's aspirations, being open to whatever he wants to do with me, makes us fearful. It makes us scared. Um, and then to, be, to suggest that, that it's our junk that is the most powerful and we should vulnerably put it out there for people to see, all of that makes us think, okay, I'll be a good Christian, but it's going to stink. It's going to be horrible. And Jesus is saying, no. Surprisingly, shockingly, just like everything else in the kingdom, it's upside down. When you go this way, you have a, Fulfillment, you can get no other way. You have a, a satisfaction. You have a deep sense of peace and contentment that comes no other way. Humbly deferring to God by pointing to Jesus, humbly posturing yourself to the will of God, and by letting the, the fully forgiven you be at the center of your testimony, provide an internal peace and a confidence and a substance that is next to none. Can I, can I just invite you uh, to do these things in order to add some humility to your testimony? Because here's the deal. You can't really just act humble. You got to be humble. And the only way I can think that we can actually become humble is to practice it. Just like the woman at the well. Talk to Jesus. Speak to God about everything. Get comfortable with God, the one who forgives you and loves you. Say things out loud that are shameful to you, that, are, that, are, that, that make you feel like Talk to him. Let him into your, get comfortable with who you are in the presence of God. Tell other good Christian friends, and I unfortunately am emphasizing good Christian friends. Some Christian friends are not good Christian friends. Find Christian friends that understand forgiveness and grace and mercy and process and progress and time and start telling them talk about who you are with your Christian friends and eventually you just got to go public with it by then you're going to have a degree of humility and your humility your vulnerability your authenticity will be compelling will be motivating, will be inspiring for people. Not to get to know you, but to get to know the one who has allowed you and permitted you and nurtured you to that point in your life. And that's pretty awesome. I, I want to invite you into a couple moments here um, 
Tammy and Tammy are going to lead you in worship, and I've asked them to delay the words a little bit just to give you a moment. Think about who you really are. Think about a degree of vulnerability with God. This is where we start. And to enjoy maybe for the first time his forgiveness on a level you'd never imagined. For some of you, it's a step of faith. Maybe your first step of faith that you're forgiven in Christ. What a great moment this is. For some of us, just a reacquaintance with um, who we really are and that God really loves us. So I invite you into that time. And then I'm sure we'll finish out with some singing and um, see you again soon.